I'm Beth Bartell. And I'm Jim Pullen. This is How on Earth, the show that makes you smarter. Today is Tuesday, November 5th, 2013. On today's show, we learn how science is helping one parched western town, Salt Lake City, adapt to climate change. And we'll talk about how the spruce beetle is overtaking the mountain pine beetle in destruction of Colorado's forests. In 2012, 310,000 acres were actively infested by spruce beetle, more than 50,000 acres more than the mountain pine beetle. We begin not with our usual headlines, but with a short report on the effects of animal studies on, well, animal studies from How on Earth's Susan Moran. For years, scientists have been uncovering the secret lives of wild animals by tagging them. Attaching radio or satellite transmitters and data loggers to creatures helps biologists learn so much about them, such as where do they travel to eat, where do they breed, how do they die. The data can help preserve threatened species from population decline and even extinction. These tags are getting smaller, lighter, and cheaper. That means scientists are using them all the more often on all kinds of animals, ranging from butterflies to sea turtles to condors. Biologists generally have believed that as long as a tag is no heavier than 5% of an animal's body weight, it won't restrict its movement. But that is hardly an exact science, because scientists haven't known exactly how much energy an animal even requires and spends to carry an instrument. According to a new study, even lighter tags can add drag to the animal's movement. Researchers for the first time quantified the energy cost to aquatic animals when they carry satellite tags, video cameras, and other research instruments. Todd Jones, who led the study, is a scientist with the Pacific Islands Fisheries Science Center in Hawaii. That's a division of the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration. His research started with a nagging question. Just how that how might these tags be changing behaviors of wild animals? And if the tag is affecting the animal's behavior and their energy use, then we're not actually accomplishing what we set out to do. After all, Jones said, if a tag disrupts an animal's natural behavior, it could miss out on breeding and foraging seasons or not be capable of catching enough food. Jones and his colleagues experimented on sea turtles. Well, actually, they studied fiberglass casts of sea turtles that swam in a wind tunnel. They found that while most commercially available tags increase drag by less than 5% for large adult animals in the wild, the same devices increase drag by more than 100% on smaller or juvenile animals. So the model that Jones' teams develop translates to many other aquatic animals as well. Jones hopes that the new findings will help scientists design tags that are tailored more effectively for their research purposes. And what is the most appropriate tag for this animal? Based on the animal's uh, behavior, its a priori activities, they believe this animal is migrating, is it, uh, is it a predator animal that has to have top accelerations and velocities? They need to take in all of these factors into their determination of what is appropriate. The paper was published last week in the journal Methods in Ecology and Evolution. For How on Earth, I'm Susan Moran. And we can't get away without at least a mention of the latest in space exploration. India launched a spacecraft to Mars today that, if its mission is successful, will make India the fourth space agency to reach the Red Planet, after the U.S., Russia, and Europe.
And you're listening to How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show. I'm Jim Pullen, and I am joined today by my guests, Laura Briefer and Tim Bardsley. And we're going to be talking about how science is helping water management planners in Salt Lake City prepare for an uncertain and drier future. Laura is the water resource manager for Salt Lake City's Department of Public Utilities, and Tim is a hydrologist who works with the Western Water Assessment with the City of Salt Lake, and uh, and we welcome them to How on Earth. Welcome, Tim and Laura. Thank you. Good morning. Good morning. Well, Laura, I'd like to start off with you. I'd like to ask you, what kind of climate-related problems are you folks trying to solve? Um, well, for you know, Salt Lake City has been, we've been looking at climate issues for a few years now and concerned about it. And, and our biggest concern is that um, we've seen agreement in our climate models that it's going to get warmer in the Intermountain West. The bottom line for us is that a warming climate will affect water resources in the Salt Lake Valley. So this really demands our attention as water managers because we anticipate changes to water supply and water demand in our system. Well, that sounds like a pretty tall order, especially when you look at the uh, the kind of confusion of kind of modeling pre- predictions that can happen. Hey, Tim, how can you folks help Laura and the city of Salt Lake City prepare for this? Well, we've worked with Salt Lake City to help kind of evaluate the climate sensitivities of their system and potential impacts from those sensitivities, as well as develop some scenarios to test uh, to look at uh, impacts of, of potential futures on their water supply. We've also tried to help kind of build a, a larger collaboration beyond Western Water Assessment and the, the city. We've incorporated uh, resources and scientists at the Colorado Basin River Forecast Center, the University of Utah, the National Center for Atmospheric Research, as well as NOAA. Right. Thanks, Tim. Well, Laura, fill us in on the situation in Salt Lake City. Describe the Salt Lake City water supply system. Okay. So about 50 to 60% on average annually of our water supply emanates from several free-flowing streams that get their start high in the headwaters of the Wasatch Mountains. Um, Those are the mountains that tower several thousand feet above the eastern flank of the Salt Lake Valley. Another 30 to 40% of our water is obtained from the Deer Creek Reservoir, which is part of a federally funded water storage project. Um, The remaining 10% of our supply is um, typically from groundwater resources. So of particular importance to us is the possible impact of climate change um, to those free-flowing, very high-quality streams from those mountains adjacent to Salt Lake City where we have lots of watershed protection regulations and, and where Salt Lake City owns the water rights. Um, so, we, And we rely on a, um, a snowpack and runoff cycle from those free-flowing streams to meet the lion's share of our early summer season water demand. And that cycle is a cycle that, that is projected to change in a warming climate. So would you characterize it as a pretty complex water supply system, Laura? I, I would. Um, there are some you know, similarities. I was trying to draw some similarities to the front range as well. You know, one of the similarities, just to give you kind of a picture of what this land area looks like, but it's primarily federal land managed for multiple uses by the U.S. Forest Service. So it's a very spectacular landscape um, like you enjoy along the front range, mountain landscape. Um, 
which is used, you know, primarily as a recreational mecca, um, among other things. So, so yeah, it's a very complex system. Well, Tim, I think many of our listeners probably do a little bit of skiing in in that area. How in the world do you model a system of such complexity? Well, that's a good question, and. Uh... We are at an advantage of, uh, of collaborating with the Colorado Basin River Forecast Center, who does operational forecasting for water supply and stream flow in the uh, uh, Colorado Basin, but also major portions of Utah, including the Wasatch Front. So we were able to partner with them and use their very well-calibrated uh, hydrology models to look at the temperature and precipitation and evapotranspiration sensitivities uh, for the watershed specific to Salt Lake City, as those uh, models are already well calibrated to do this operational work, we were able to then take the uh, historic observations and adjust them by increases in temperature or increases and in decreases in precipitation and also the impacts on evapotranspiration and run a bunch of simulations to get at the sensitivities of these uh, seven watersheds of specific interest to uh, Salt Lake City. Laura, do you put a lot of faith in this sort of modeling? And uh, how much faith uh, can you put into this sort of modeling? You know, that, I, that's a great question. As, as you probably know, the science on, on climate change and the models we rely on are changing a lot as we develop new methodologies. Um, with respect to what we've worked on with Tim and his group, the fact that we have a well-calibrated hydrologic model has really helped us. And so what we put a lot of faith in, and, and actually it's not just faith, it's just that the science is really good. So, you know, we feel like we have a really good springboard for understanding the hydrologic sensitivities and, and the scenarios that we might see under different temperature and precipitation changes. And, and that's really what we're looking at is a scenario-based approach based on good science to understand um, our sensitivities and to understand other, other questions that we need to um, maybe, do, maybe look at in the context of more research. Well, Tim, it must be a pretty heady responsibility uh, helping the city of Salt Lake. A lot of folks live there uh, and uh, kind of rely on this sort of scientific modeling to plan for the future and, and at a huge cost probably to themselves. I asked Laura that. But what are the uncertainties, and, and how do you meet Laura's needs? Well, the uncertainties kind of come in different tiers. We have... Uh, uh, for this study, uh, as we talked about, we just looked at the sensitivities to changes in temperature and precipitation. So we have some uncertainties in, in the hydrologic modeling, I'd say specifically as related to evapotranspiration, uh, because we are driving a future evapotranspiration with uh, sensitivities in temperature. Evapotranspiration is much more complicated than that and is also driven by uh, specific humidity, uh, wind speed, and, and solar radiation, among a few other drivers. And we don't really have much information on that. So that's one assumption we've had, had to make. The, uh, as we move into the future, we'll also be looking at uh, climate change scenarios uh, from, uh, from a, a series of climate models. And those have uncertainties as well, and that's why, as Laura mentioned, we're not going to say that this is one future that we're looking at, but we're looking at scenarios and hopefully um, strategies that are resilient to a number of future, uh, possible future climates. Uh, so 
I'd say the, for what we're at now, the sensitivity is the evapotranspiration, which is the, the uh, biggest uncertainty due to the drivers that we just don't have a good handle for what wind speed, is, how wind speed might change, how specific humidity might change, and how vapor pressure might be changing 40, 50 years down the road. And that's a great point, Tim, because when he's talking about evapotranspiration, that's directly related to the potential future demand changes, behavioral changes around the use of water um, in our system as well. Right. We have about a minute left. I'd like to kind of uh, ask a question that you know, relates to our flood. You know, uh, we had a flood that many uh, were surprised at. Now when you talk to climate scientists, they say, oh, yeah, we were expecting that flood. We just weren't expecting it tomorrow. Laura, how do you plan for the unplanned? <laughs> and that's, that's a really that's a really great question. And so, you know, I think we are in a time of uncertainty with respect to the, to the unfortunate flood that impacted um, much of the um, Boulder area and nearby areas. You know, I, f I feel like extreme weather events are something that we're seeing more of here. And, you know, whether that's a climate change related um, impact or not, I think, you know, one of the questions we have and that we're working with Tim and others to answer is, is this the new normal or what is the new normal with respect to weather and climate, our water resources, and, and other issues? Well, Tim, very briefly, um, how do you model the unknown? How are you going to meet those needs? <laughs> well, uh, the... Basically, we're going to go through a series of, of, of scenarios, and, and we're pretty confident in these sensitivities. I mentioned the uncertainty and evapotranspiration, but we do have a very well-calibrated model that is driven by the climate, climate we observe. So we expect as we adjust that model with these sensitivities, it's going to give us a pretty realistic representation. So we just need to choose a variety of future climate scenarios and then look at how they impact Salt Lake City's system. Uh, and, and then plan for a, a range of potential futures rather than a single uh, future that we have, have uh, pretend we have extreme confidence in one. Well, Tim Bardsley, thank you so much for joining us from Salt Lake City. You're a hydrologist with Western Water Assessment. Laura, thank you so much. You're the Water Resource Manager for Salt Lake City. Thank, thank you. Jim. you. You are listening to How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show. I'm Beth Bartel. We're going to continue with a the climate theme, but bring it away from the cities and into the forests. So picture this. Up high in the mountains of Colorado, a small beetle about the size of a grain of rice works its way into the bark of a spruce tree where it burrows in to find some tasty morsels, the tree's reproductive tissues, where it will feast and under the right conditions, kill the tree. This is not the more familiar mountain pine beetle, but a spruce beetle. Same idea, different tree. And the scale of a current spruce beetle outbreak in our state is being referred to by CU researchers as massive. Here to tell us more about Colorado's spruce beetle outbreak and the drought that's causing it is University of Colorado researcher Sarah Hart. Sarah is a doctoral candidate in the geography department studying ecology. Sarah Hart, welcome to the show. Hi. Um, so you recently co-authored a study on spruce beetles in Colorado's forest. We see the effects of mountain pine beetles, the yellow sickly looking trees, um, the tree kill um, all around, including in our local areas. And we've even talked about that before on the show. Um, why should we care about these 
spruce beetles? I think that we should care about the spruce beetle because we've seen all this devastation occurring from the mountain pine beetle, um, and now we're seeing more activity picking up from the spruce beetle. And the potential for the spruce beetle to attack an even larger area than the mountain pine beetle is pretty high, both because we're in these warm and dry conditions and because there's actually a larger area of spruce fir forest across Colorado than there is lodgepole pine, which is what the mountain pine beetle was attacking. So we can see catastrophic um, mortality across much of Colorado subalpine forests. And uh, right now, the outbreak is being caused by a drought, correct? The research, uh, you looked specifically at whether the outbreak was caused by moisture or caused by temperature, and you found that it's caused mainly by moisture content. Yeah, we looked at um, outbreaks over the past 300 years and found that drought was the most important predictor of when spruce beetle outbreaks were occurring. So um, previous research had shown that temperature was really important in accelerating beetle life cycles. Um, And we're finding that it's not only these warm conditions, but also these dry conditions that are stressing host trees out. So they're not able to defend themselves that are really important, too. So the outbreak, uh, these outbreaks are caused not only by the beetle's reproductive cycles, but also by the tree's ability to defend itself against these intruders. Exactly. Um, what, uh, could you tell us about some of those defenses? What's being compromised here? Sure. So the tree has basically two major defense mechanisms against the beetle. Um, so the beetle basically bores into the tree's bark um, and tries to lay its eggs on the inner bark tissues. And the first line of defense that the tree has is just to try and push the beetle out using this kind of resinous sap um, that's kind of being exuded from the tree. Um, And and what's that process? I love this. What's that process called? (laughs) Pitching out. And that's something that we can see in trees, right? If we look and we see these little plugs of sap on the side of the tree, that's that's the tree trying to squeeze out these beetles. Exactly. And if you see a tree that's um, able to defend itself well, it probably has more of these pitch tubes or these um, features along it just because it has actually more resin and more pitch, so it has more production capacity. Some of our really stressed trees that are um, occurring in really dry areas don't even have the ability to produce these pitch tubes. And that's what we're concerned about under these warm and dry conditions is that trees are no longer really able to defend themselves. So you guys have been looking more in this study at the trees than at the beetles? Yeah, we've been we've been using um, tree ring analysis and looking at climate and driving um, spruce beetle outbreaks over the past three hundred years. So, um, let's talk about uh, the so the cause of of the drought. This was um, a little bit surprising to me. So the cause of the drought is actually the ocean, the Atlantic <laughs> Ocean. Yeah, yeah. So there's these broad scale um, climate oscillations that occur across. Um, the globe. It's basically drive our weather and climate. And here in Colorado, a lot of our periods of drought are related to oscillations um, in the Atlantic Ocean, something called the Atlantic Multidecadal Oscillation. It's a bit of a mouthful. We just call it the AMO. Um, But when the AMO is in positive phases, we basically have periods of drought here in Colorado. Um, And so the AMO switched into a positive phase in the mid-90s. This kind of led to warmer and drier conditions um, that kind of accelerated some of the bark beetle activity that we're seeing across the state. Um, And uh, there have been um, 
some nice headlines going along with uh, your research and the media. Let me see if I can find my list here. Right. So some nice dramatic headlines. The Huffington Post uses the word massive, which I think came straight from your press release. Um, Treehugger describes a devastating spruce beetle outbreak. And my personal favorite is Mother Jones headline, when spruce beetles attack. Um, So what should we be worried about? Um, I think we're worried about kind of how spruce beetles killed forests are really going to affect both water, fire, and kind of the ecology of these systems. So some people are really concerned about um, increased likelihood of fire following mountain pine beetle and spruce beetle outbreaks. Um, And that's really hard for us to answer right now, what the consequences are going to be. There's a lot of uncertainty. It's kind of the theme of science, as you've learned earlier today. Um, We can say from historical spruce beetle outbreaks that there's non-increased occurrence of fire following um, bark beetle outbreaks. Um, But we're not sure exactly about the severity and other other things. There's a lot of uncertainty there still. and and um, just to wrap up, so uh, what are looking at climate change, looking at current drought conditions? This is a natural drought cycle, but is there any possibility of exacerbating the effects of the the pine the spruce beetle outbreak with climate conditions? I think so. I think we're seeing that. Um, stands that wouldn't have been affected in earlier outbreaks when things were slightly cooler and wetter um, are now being affected. So things like our really high elevation forests are even experiencing spruce beetle outbreak, which is pretty alarming. Great. Thank you so much for joining us on the show and telling us a little bit about this spruce beetle outbreak. That's all for this edition of How on Earth. Our executive producer this week is me, Beth Bartell. I also produced this week's show, and the show was engineered by Jim Pullen with additional contributions from Sarah Susan Moran. And our theme music was written and produced by Josh Cutler, and we had some additional music by Atropos. <laughs> or Atropolis, depending on how you like to pronounce it. <laughs> Visit our website at howonearthradio.org to find past episodes and extended interviews. You can subscribe to our podcast through iTunes and follow us on Facebook and Twitter. Question or comments? Call the KGNU comment line at 303-447-9911. For How on Earth, I'm Jim Pullen. And I am Beth Bartell. <laughs>